This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. You can receive all new content offered by EverythingVoluntary.com in your email inbox every single weekday for free. Visit Digest.EverythingVoluntary.com to subscribe. We're live on location at Stanford University, and joining me today is an economist, author, scholar, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and living legend, Dr. Thomas Sowell. Welcome to the Rubin Report. Well, thank you. Good to be with you. I feel I have to get the gushing out first. That way we can focus on the book. I don't know that there's anyone on this mortal coil whose writing and thinking has influenced me more than you. So this this is truly an honor for me, and I just have to get that out right at the beginning. I just hope I haven't misled you. <laughs> we'll find out. I'll let you know at the end. Um, so first I thought I want to do a little bit on your history, and I want to focus on your new book. Um, but I was curious if you have a sense of the sort of renaissance that your writing is having right now with young people. Because when I tweeted out that we finally had you on the show and we've been trying to make this happen for quite some time, I mean thousands of responses. And I had tons of people just say, please tell him this, tell him this. My awakening was because of Dr. Sal, all of this. Are you noticing something happening right now because of the unique place where I only know what people tell me. <laughs> That's even true at Stanford. Yeah. Uh, I only know what my, my research assistants tell me. All right. Well, I'll, <laughs> I will certainly accept that. Well, take my word for it then. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, your history for a bit, and then we'll, then we'll move on to your new book. Uh, born North Carolina. Yes. Grew up in the Bronx. In Harlem. In, in Harlem, sorry, in Harlem. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of your, your formative years. Well, you know, I, I thought about it as I was doing the research for the first chapter where I get into the birth order thing. Now, had my uh, my parents uh, lived a normal lifespan, I would have been the sixth child in the family. They died young, and so I was adopted in infancy uh, in a family as an only child, raised as an only child in a home with four adults. And uh, in terms of what what. I found in the, out the research on birth order, clearly that was a huge advantage. Uh, and so their misfortune uh, was my good fortune. And moreover, the family in which I was raised moved to New York, which at that time had a far superior uh, educational system to that in North Carolina and far superior to what it is today. Were you always interested in education? I mean, even as a young no. person? No. I mean, a kid, little kid, there was nothing in my background that would have done, put, put me there. Uh, but fortunately, in, in Harlem, there was a kid named Eddie that uh, members of the family had run into before I ever arrived from North Carolina. And he was a very, uh, came from a highly educated family. Uh, and they uh, immediately saw the implications if they, if they could get him to, uh, to, to sort of mentor me. And uh, now, had I had met Eddie on my own, chances are I would never have seen any significance. Uh, he would just have been one of the people I passed by. But of course, the uh, the, the adults understood what the future was like, and, and thinking about things that kids don't think about, uh, despite the great uh, 
worship of, ch- of, of, of child talkers these days. <laughs> uh, and so, but, so he, he took me to a public library, and I had no idea what a public library was. Wow. I was eight years old. And I saw all these books, and I had no idea why we were there when I didn't have any money to buy one book. And so what am I going to do with all these you know, hundreds of books up on the shelf? And he very patiently walked me through the whole thing. And again, I was very reluctant to take out a library card because I didn't know what, what all this is about. But he talked me into it, and I, and I borrowed a couple of books. And really, had I not encountered him, the, the entire rest of the story could not have been the way it was. I mean, at some point, I would have learned what a public library was. But by that point, it would be too late. Yeah. I mean, if you when you start getting in the habit of of reading when you're eight years old, uh, that, that's a different ball game than if you have to wait till you're a teenager and it's too late now. Dare I ask if you have any recollection what you might have taken out of the library at eight years old? Uh, one of the books was the Doctor Doolittle books. Uh, I don't know if you even know what those are. He, he could talk to the animals. Yep. A- Alice in Wonderland. And uh, the rest of them, but uh, I, I came in on May, and there wasn't school wasn't open until September, so I had no one to play with, and I was just bored to tears. Mm-hmm. And so I started reading, really for the first time, and I got the habit of reading. And on that, you know, that made the rest possible. Yeah. Were there any other formative things that happened to you over those those younger years? Yes, the same. The same fellow was uh, very knowledgeable about, all about the school system. So when I finished elementary school. And they assigned me to a junior high school in a very bad uh, neighborhood. And he told me that you, you can get transferred. And I, in fact, got transferred to a much better school. Uh, had I gone to that other school, uh, I, again, the story would have been entirely different. Uh, and I, one, of the, one of the themes of the early part of the book here is that there are, there are a whole number of things that have to come together. And if you don't have all of those prerequisites, then all the whatever good qualities you have don't matter. And I mentioned illiteracy that, uh, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, something like 40 percent of the adults in the world were still illiterate. And so it doesn't matter what their native talent or any of that came along. You can't read. There are a whole lot of uh, occupations you just simply can't get into. Yeah. So it's pretty clear from all the, the reading of yours that I've done. You, you put basic education basically is number one, right? I mean, is that the number one thing that you can do as, as a human being? Get educated? I guess, although I wouldn't carry it too far because some of the most uh, disastrous notions in the world have come from highly educated people with, I'm sure, high IQs. So perhaps critical thinking with a little education? Oh, uh, I, I, am, uh, uh, I will settle for almost any kind of thinking. <laughs> it's so rare these days. <laughs> it, it is oddly rare. So uh, one of the things that I found out that was sort of amazing about your history, you, you briefly mentioned it right before we started, you were a Marxist at one time in your life. Most people will find this hard to believe, but it is true. But it's not that unusual. Uh, most of the, of the leading conservative thinkers of our ta- time uh, did not start off as conservative. You had a couple like uh, Bill Buckley and uh, George Will. But I mean, Milton Friedman was, was, a, was a liberal and a Keynesian. Uh, Hayek was a socialist. Ronald Reagan was so far left, at one point the FBI was following him, you know? Uh, so, uh, so there's a huge movement 
uh, from the left to the right as people get older. Yeah, I'm, I'm well aware, as I mentioned to you earlier, as a former progressive, I, I understand that, that movement in the yeah. modern sense. Do you, do you remember sort of what you were thinking, what appealed to you at that time about Marxism? Yes, I mean, there was no alternative being discussed. Uh, my first job was as a Western Union messenger. And uh, I would come home on some nights, I would take the Fifth Avenue bus, which cost all of 15 cents in those days. <laughs> but I figured I'd splurge now and then. And I would drive, it would go all the way up Fifth Avenue, past all these Lord and Taylor and uh, all these fancy uh, places. And then I would cross 57th Street, past Carnegie Hall, and down Riverside Drive, and that was the, the, sort of the Gold Coast area. And then as I came across this long viaduct, and that turned into 135th Street, suddenly there were the tenements. And I wondered, why is this? I mean, it's so, it's so, it's so different. And, and nothing in the schools or in most of the books uh, seemed to deal with that. And Marx dealt with that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's like winning an election when there's only one person running. So then what was your wake-up to what was wrong with that line of thinking? Uh, facts. Facts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we could probably end the interview right there. Yeah, Facts. Yeah, there you and, go. And, yeah. and specifically, my first uh, professional job, I was a uh, uh, summer intern at the U.S. Department of Labor. And I realized from dealing with these people that the U.S. Department of Labor, one of my biggest concerns was about minimum wages. It mm-hmm. has been for a long time. And so my, my, at first I thought, well, this is good because all these people are poor and they'll get a little higher income. And so that, that'll, that'll be helpful. And then uh, as I studied economics, I began to see, well, there's a downside. They may lose their jobs completely. So that's, that is that. And so I tried, I, when I was at the Labor Department, I tried to talk about that to them. And eventually I came up with some test of it. And uh, uh, when I came up with this test, how we might test this, I was waiting to hear congratulations. You see, that I had this. And I could see these people were stunned. They said, oh, this, this idiot has stumbled on something that will ruin us all. Wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I realized the U.S. Department of Labor had its uh, own agenda and interests, uh, and that did necess- not necessarily mean that, that whether poor people lost their jobs from minimum wages or got higher pay was their highest priority. Yeah. How much longer did you last at the department? No, that, that, was, no, that was really the turning point. Yeah. And then I began to see that all these government agencies and whatnot, they have their own institutional incentives. And uh, you cannot say that the government will step in and do the, what's right for these people and whatnot, because they'll do what's right for themselves. So I think a lot of people watching this, and I know because I've been so open about my own sort of awakening, are going through this right now. They're realizing that the things that they've been taught for so mm-hmm. long are not the, the truth and are not yes. based in fact. When, when that happened to you and you started telling other people, not mm-hmm. just the people you were working with, be it family mm-hmm. or friends, what kind of pushback did you get? Because it was sort of radical ideas in a way that you were talking about then. Well, I, I, actually, I, didn't, I didn't feel any need to uh, uh, do a lot of, a lot of proselytizing. Uh, it was enough for me that, uh, that I, I was now beginning to understand things I hadn't understood before. And uh, as you've noted in the, in the book, I, have, I mentioned minimum wage studies. And really, they're, they're incredibly flawed. Mm-hmm. There's a whole chapter on numbers. Uh, uh, and, and the other thing, getting back to my personal development, I mean, I left home when I was 17, uh, no high school diploma, no skills, no job experience. And I discovered that there was not a huge amount of demand for people like that. Uh, 
But in retrospect, decades later when I do research, I realize that in 1948, the unemployment rate for black 16 and 17-year-olds was 9.4. For whites the same age, it was 10.2. Hmm. And those numbers are, are much smaller than we, we're used to in recent decades. Uh, and there's no serious uh, racial difference. In fact, the blacks in my age bracket, we're doing just slightly better. Uh, and, of course, one of the things that the minimum wage law does is that it, it creates unemployment, raises it to multiples of what it was. 1948 was a, was a special time because the minimum wage law was passed in 1938. And in the intervening 10 years, there was huge inflation and the law hadn't gotten changed. And so for all practical purposes, there was no minimum wage law. But had we had these wonderful liberals uh, <laughs> insisting that I be paid a living wage that would support a family of four, I would have been unemployed. And I don't, I don't know what, what, what that would have led to. <laughs> right. It would probably would not have led up yeah. to, to everything else. So when you, when, when you think about the, these wonderful liberals, as you just said, you know, I think there's sort of two lines of thinking. One is that, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Oh. I, I try not to besmirch the— it's a the, super highway. It's a super highway, exactly. I try not to besmirch their intentions. Uh, but then I think there are people that are either con- have confused thinking or have ulterior motives mm-hmm. or whatever else. What, what do you think it, it is? As someone that is so based in fact, and we're going to get to plenty of that fact in a moment, what, what do you think the thinking is, the flaw in the thinking? Oh, I think it's the idea that you don't have to check— a good-sounding idea against what actually happens. Uh, the whole 19— and there are people to this day who think that the 1960s was just a great period. And, uh, and I'll say to them, do you realize how many uh, good trends— the, 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 the murder rate um, among uh, black males had gone down, had been going down for two decades— mm-hmm. You know, by 18% in one decade, 22% in the next decade. And in 1960, it suddenly takes a U-turn straight up. And that was not peculiar to blacks or even to the United States. Uh, Pinker's book uh, about, about uh, violence, that, you know, that throughout what the Western world, the, the homicide rates did a U-turn mm-hmm. in the 1960s. So the question is, uh, what actually happens when you put your wonderful ideas to work? Do they produce the kind of thing you thought they were going to produce? Or do they produce all the opposite in many areas? And they produce lots of opposites. Yeah, I- I'm glad you mentioned Stephen Pinker. I had him on the show a few weeks ago. Ah, and and yes. I think he's, you know, he's one of the clearest thinkers we have. And you know, his new book, Enlightenment Now, is that things are trending more positively. But even hearing that is, is very hard for a lot of people. Well, it depends on what your baseline is. Uh, uh, Pinker is much more optimistic than I am. Uh, I, uh, I happen to be very pessimistic about the future, but I hope the optimists are right. <laughs> do, you, do you think you're a pessimist by nature? No, but I think uh, having st- studied so many things that sounded so good and ended up so bad, uh, it makes me uh, doubt, especially when there are people who are anxious to spout off with very little uh, study of what, of what they're talking about. Yeah, we've got a lot of that these days. Do you think that has ramped up? or you oh, know, yes. I think social media seems to amplify things, but do you think it's always been that way about just sort of this endless pontificating of people that really don't know what they're talking about? Well, there's always been that, as long as there have been human beings. But the question is the magnitude of it and, and the ability of various institutions to shut out uh, any other viewpoint, and of which the universities are the worst examples. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, 
when I when I when I see the riots when Charles Murray shows up, and I happen to know Charles Murray. I mean, if you can demonize Charles Murray, you can <laughs> demonize anybody. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, and I I listen to see what are they going to quote that he said. I've never heard a single quote of all the books the man has written. They they never quote anything he said. Yeah. And a lot of what he said is the direct opposite of what they claim he said. That tells you a little bit about sort of yeah. the state we're in right now. Yeah. So do you? So this. This thing that's happening on college campuses right now mm. that everyone seems to think is, is freezing free speech, and, and it seems to be speech, is, speech that's generally thought of as right. So it's mm. conservatives, libertarians, further people on the right than that. Uh, you're saying that's really not a new phenomenon. You, you were kind of facing well, been, well, it was not that bad in the 1950s when I was a Marxist and, and when Senator Joe McCarthy was, uh, was tracking down anybody on the left. But uh, I said whatever I felt like, wherever I felt like it, and I got no such blowback. That's really interesting. So McCarthy's talking about all this stuff, but you had no problem no. being an open he, he was in Washington, and I was in Cambridge, yeah. and so be it. Yeah. So you do think something has gotten worse now? Oh, no. There's a number of things. Venereal diseases, for example, were going down at a very steep rate. It was either syphilis or gonorrhea that was... One half as prevalent in 1960 as it was in 1950. The, the, the brilliant idea was to bring in sex education, you see, to avoid uh, unwanted pregnancies and so on. And uh, venereal diseases skyrocketed. Unwanted pregnancies, teenage pregnancies skyrocketed. It's amazing that so many people on the left are able to just ignore any facts that go against their theory. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, it just does not... Uh, my uh, my old mentor at the University of Chicago, uh, Joyce Stigler, argued, however, that uh, economists have very little influence, and what what they say makes very little difference. And he was giving a talk at the Hoover Institution once. And he said, "Thanks to years of dedicated work by Tom Sowell, uh, the next minimum wage increase will be five cents an hour <laughs> less than it would have been otherwise." <laughs> Well, that's what's interesting to me is because as I, as I preface this with you, I think that the writings that you've done all these years in these books, they're becoming culturally relevant, maybe in a way that they weren't, I don't even want to say it this way, but maybe in a way that they didn't, weren't economically relevant. Do you understand the, the point there that I think there's a cultural relevance to all the things that you've done for these last you know, 40 some odd years that seems so actually powerful and impactful to me right now, which is incredible. Well, I, when it comes to impact, that, that's a different the story entirely. I mean, uh, long ago, I stopped uh, uh, accepting invitations to testify before congressional yeah. committees. It's an absolute waste of time. They have made up their minds, and they just want to be able to say they've heard all points of view. Uh, uh, and then it pretty much stops there. That, that's right. And yeah. I, I remember once uh, Kenneth Clark, uh, was, I was debating him, and he was beside himself because of my supposed sinister influence in Washington during the Reagan administration. I told him, if my, if my influence in Washington is all you have to worry about, you are, very, <laughs> you are a very fortunate man. Yeah. Because I, have had, I can't think of anything that happened any different than if I had never said anything to anybody. <laughs> You're being very humble, sir. No, I'm just realistic. I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't uh, find I, I can remember testifying before one committee and uh, the audience was so rowdy that the, the chairman had to back bang the gavel to, to, to keep them sh- to shut them down, uh, and and they had put some little 
tiny thing in, in, in the law they were building. Uh, and, and I would bet the rent money that that provision is, is gone now <laughs> because there are so many people who, did, who didn't. I, I was saying that if you're going to help uh, poor kids, then give the money to the kids or else you know, provide it for where, where will they go. Don't turn it over to the institution because they, they will then use it in an entirely different way. Are, are there any examples where the money is turned over to the institution, whatever the institution might be, where it really does work? Are there any aberrations in most there of must, There must be somewhere by the but, law of averages, but uh, it is not prevalent. Yeah. So a couple times you've mentioned liberals, and one mm. of the things that I talk about on my show often, because I was, I was a progressive, mm. I, was, I was a lefty, I now call myself a classical liberal. Mm. And I've tried to make the point that being a liberal in the traditional sense has very little, if anything, to do with the left anymore. Yes, Are, are there true. any, do, do you see any sort of meaningful distinction between classical liberal and libertarian at this point? Or, or do you see even, I'll ask you a couple things at once and you can go in any direction, um, do you see any? Are there? Do you see a difference, of course, between liberals and the left? I mean, the words have all sort of. Yeah, gotten Milton muddled, Friedman right? used to always say that he was he was a liberal. So did Hayek. Uh, and, and and of course, in, in different countries, the word means different things. I mean, Australia, uh, if you said you were a liberal, they, they they would understand what you were saying. But in a, but a liberal in Australia is different from a, a liberal in the United States. Yeah. So when you say liberal, you you mean leftist, basically. Yeah, right? and the American sense of the and, word. Yeah. Um, do you think there's any sort of real distinction that needs to be made between classical liberal and libertarian? That, that's one of the things that people ask me all the time. And I know you're not big on labels generally, but I did read uh, something where you said that the closest thing that you could be labeled as is libertarian. Do you, mm-hmm. Is that still where you're at? Yeah, except, of course, in foreign policy. We can talk about that, too. And, and, and I, mean, I guess also the, 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 the libertarians seem to have this atomistic view of the world. Which I think is uh, completely unrealistic. Yeah. So, uh, go ahead. Because I mean, not only in my life, but in the the lives of people around me, uh, the surroundings make a huge difference. Uh, One of the things I get into a lot in in the book is this: the disparities imply uh, either either discrimination on the one hand or genetic differences on the other, Mm -hmm. Uh, and disparities are the norm. I mean, I was just reading something the other day, you know, that uh, Latin America has 8% of the people in the world. They commit 38% of all the murders. Hmm. Uh, And in Latin America, 80%, no, 38% for for that. But in Latin America, 80% of the murders occur on 2% of the streets. Wow. So, but but you find that when you look look up facts, that's what you find over and over again. Uh, and, And... in, in all the discussions of uh, income di- differences, they act that they they never take into account age, and age is huge. I mean, Japanese Americans have a median age of fifty. Hispanic Americans has have a median age of twenty six. Now, that's, when you see uh, Hispanic Americans greatly overrepresented among baseball stars, and not a single Japanese American baseball star in the major leagues, I don't believe in the entire history. Yeah, well, we had Ichiro on CNN. No, 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 no. That was there are people of Japanese ancestry who have been become baseball stars. Yeah, all of them are from Japan. None of them are Japanese American. Ah, okay, fair enough. Right, he played. He was a star in Japan for that, many years. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 
how many 50-year-old men are going to be baseball stars? Yeah. Uh, and by the same token, <laughs> how many 26-year-old men are going to be surgeons or CEOs? Uh, any other kind of job that requires long years of study or, and or long years of experience. And so even if they were the same, if the two groups were the same in every other way, and if there was absolutely no distinction or discrimination or whatnot, they still, there would be a huge difference in income simply because of age. And, and that really is what this book is about. And, you know, the book itself, it's about 160 pages. But what I loved... You know how many pages of notes you have in there? Do you have? Do you know offhand by any? Well, chance? I know. I know 127 pa- pages are text, and the rest of it is notes. Yeah. So you had about 30 some odd pages yeah. on notes, and I actually started going through the notes because I thought this is this is exactly what we need now. We, you know, like when I was reading it, there were pages that I had to read more than once because mm-hmm. you're obviously giving a lot of numbers and facts, and you have to look at these things from different angles, mm-hmm. and and we're not very good at that these days, right? We're we're sort of we no, look at no. things from one angle, and then and then you start the screaming. And I yeah. think that's what you're, you're, you're really a master of here. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm trying, I try to, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it works out. We'll see. Um, do you make any meaningful distinction between sort of a classical liberal and a libertarian? Is that, is that just sort of... Uh, that, that, that's uh, wholly peripheral mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they're just trying to get a few simple facts across is a full-time job. Yeah. All right. So then let's talk about some of the facts that you lay out in the book. You talk about two types of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, could, you, could you lay those out? Yeah. Uh, it, the word ha- has almost opposite meanings. I mean, the first meaning when they say yeah, someone has discriminating taste, you mean he, he can tell what is a good uh, wine from a bad wine, what is a good camera from a bad camera, and so forth. And that's almost the exact opposite of the meaning in, in the law, where you mean someone who uh, judges someone by what group he comes from, irrespective of the individual's actual uh, personal uh, qualities. So th- those are two very different things. Uh, ideally, you would like every person to be uh, judged as an individual. But as a practical matter, that, that becomes impossible because the costs are prohibitive. Yeah, so I the- use the example where if you're walking down the yeah. street at night, and and uh, you see a shadowy figure in, in, a, in an alley up ahead. I mean, do you judge him as an individual, <laughs> or do you cross the street and uh, go across on the other side? Because uh, the, the cost of, of, of judging him as an individual can be very high, including your life. So uh, so we make that distinction. But then I say that I call that discrimination. Discrimination one one is when you just have a a, a, ver- a very good understanding of what the facts are. And so if you judge each person as an individual, I call that discrimination 1A. Mm-hmm. And then if you judge them by the group they belong to, that's not as good, but that's discrimination 1B. But it's still based on some facts. Uh, discrimination 2, which is what reason we have anti-discrimination laws, uh, is that you, you don't worry about that at all. If he's s- someone that you don't like for whatever reason, uh, then you, 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 uh, you know, discri- you are biased against him. Yeah. Are you shocked when you look at what's going on right now and, and see so much talk about race all the time, so much talk about all, oh, of, the, yes. all of the things that separate us, the very things that, that you've been arguing against mm-hmm. based, in fact, for so many years that seem in an odd way more – I don't think there's more racism now mm-hmm. than ever or, or more, more of talk. these dividers, but there's more talk about it. Yes. And, and it's devastating. I mean, uh, wars in general – are much easier to start than they are to stop. I mean, when when uh, when that uh, fellow in in, uh, in Serbia shot the Archduke, 
I mean, who knew that that was going to cost millions of people around the world, yeah. including people from the United States about about 10,000 miles away are going to come over there and start shooting. Yeah, the Great War. Yeah, and, and you can't get, and, you get and, I'm, and I'm worried about the tr- current trade war. You start a trade war, you may never be able to stop it in, 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 the, in the next decade because there are too many people involved, too many cross currents of interest and so on. What, what would you do about our school systems? Oh, my goodness. I'll try, I'll try to be rational. Uh, <laughs> do try. They, they, are, they, are, they are so awful. Uh, the public has no idea. What, I'm reading a book about the schools, and the, the woman who's writing it, Diane Ravitch, is talking about how teachers have due process before they can be fired. Now, uh, you, when you look into the facts of it, uh, right down here in, I think it was Atherton, they, it cost a half a million dollars to fire one incompetent teacher. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't have a big enough budget, <laughs> you know. And right. in, in, New, in New York, you have something called the rubber room. These are teachers who are so incompetent that the, the, the principals don't want them in the classroom, uh, you know. And they get paid full salary, and they show up, and they accrue uh, um, uh, uh, pension rights and so forth. And uh, I, the last time, I forget how many millions of dollars are spent a year in New York paying for teachers who don't teach and, in fact, don't do anything but show up at, at the same time as if they were teaching and they read magazines or whatever they feel like doing. Uh, and this, this farce goes on uh, at a time when they don't have enough money to provide the kids with uh, decent uh, supplies. So how do we scale back this? I mean, you can talk, we can talk about it through the lens of education, but in any, in any area where the government has taken on a bigger role than it's supposed to. I think one of the things you hear all the time is it's sort of too late, I think a lot of people think. It's too late to take back no, that government power. No, you, you, heavens, uh, during the Reagan administration, that was the only time I know of when the Federal Register grew smaller, that is where they compile all the laws that have been passed in a given time. So it can be done. It's not. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not uh, e- easy, but it can be done. Someone once there was some issue that Reagan was discussing, and someone said, "You know, it, it's complicated." He said, "It's not complicated. It's just not easy to do." I mean, right now, we, I, 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 one of the big forces out here uh, uh, talks about affordable housing, and they're appointing uh, blue ribbon committees to look into why there's no affordable housing. And I think that, that's that, that's like appointing a blue ribbon committee to to to, to explain why the ground is wet after after a rain. <laughs> I mean, it's very simple. If you prevent people from building housing and the population is growing, you're going to have a housing shortage, yeah. and you won't have affordable housing. It's really you know economics one during the first first two weeks. <laughs> They're not very good at taking economics 101, I don't think. So, so would your answer be in almost every case to just scale back government, scale back regulation? Is no, it, depends, any, on what, depends on what they're yeah. doing. There are, there are some things uh, that government is necessary to do. So what, what are those type of things that you Oh, f- for security, first of all, the, the, having, having dependable laws. Uh, some people think that if you're uh, uh, for free markets, that means you don't think the government should do anything. No, uh, you, the free markets don't operate except within a framework of laws. That's wholly different from having them operate with politicians uh, jumping in at unpredictable times to suddenly uh, pass some new uh, legislation. Yeah. What can we do right now? I mean, so really this would be about just 
sort of electing more libertarian-minded politicians then? I mean, is that really the only way we can change things, do you think? No, I think the main thing, people have to know what the facts are themselves. Uh, if, if everyone knew what all the facts were, I think you'd have an entirely different set, set of people elected. I, I, I can't believe that, that either of the uh, presidential candidates in, 19, in 2016 uh, would, have, would have been the candidates if you had an informed public. Yeah, we're not very good at that. How much of this do you think is part of the media's fault? That's one of the things. Well, the media are, are, are mostly uninformed. No, no, they're not uninformed. They are misinformed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 they, and they simply do not ch- check the facts uh, on large issues or small. Yeah. What, what can we do to fix that, do you think? I mean, I suppose this, no, right? No, right? no, like, yeah. But, writing but, books like this? Well, but I think more form. fundamentally... The public that votes has to itself become informed and not be so easily stampeded by slogans and a few numbers thrown around uh, like, you know, women make X percent of what men make and so on. Yeah. Uh, When I was studying that some years ago, for example, uh, I found out that uh, young young um, uh, female doctors made much less money than young male doctors. That seemed like very odd. And so I but when you look into it, you discover that young male doctors work an average of 500 hours a year more than young female doctors, and they get paid for the 500 hours. Mm-hmm. But, but there's, there's no reason why the women and men should be doing the same thing. Their circumstances are different. So are there any laws that are in place right now that you believe are discriminatory one way or another tor- towards any community or against any community? Oh, I would have to write a much larger book to cover them all. <laughs> uh, the minimum wage law is absolutely devastating. Uh, the policy of saying that you cannot have uh, more kids from one uh, ethnic group disciplined in the school than from another is nonsense. I mean, uh, Groups are different from each other in umpteen ways, and, and to have the presumption that they are the same except for the way they're, they're treated uh, is nonsense. It's never been true, and I don't know why we would think it's true here today. So I do sense that some of what you just said there is bubbling up into the national conscious because I get a ton of email from black conservatives now, mm-hmm. people that feel uh, that they haven't been represented fairly or that the, the, you know, the so-called leaders of the black community that are on television all mm. the time are actually preaching the complete reverse of everything that you've said here. Yes. Do, do you sense that there is some sort of growing conservative movement well, in, there was in the a, black community? There was a time when, when uh, that, that community would have consisted of me and Walter Williams. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know Walter used to say we with the two of us should never fly on the same plane, otherwise the whole movement <laughs> will, will uh, disappear if the plane yeah. goes down. Uh, well, I, I mentioned I, to you before we started that Larry Elder caused my awakening because yes. I was a progressive and I said something to him about uh, systemic racism mm-hmm. on air mm-hmm. and he beat me senseless with facts. And I had to go back and reassess what well, was because, wrong with my thinking. Well, you know, in, in, one of the, in one of the chapters there, I have a little section about uh, uh, the era of apartheid under, in South Africa. And, and I, I had that in there because there's so much argument about how much racism is there and so forth. And I said, let's test this hypothesis in a setting where there's absolutely no doubt of, 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 of it. And that's apartheid in South Africa uh, with a government where blacks are not allowed to vote and so forth. And you then apply the economic principles and you find that the economic principles apply in South Africa. That uh, there are some occupations 
See, blacks weren't allowed by law to be in certain occupations more than a certain percentage. Mm-hmm. And in some occupations, couldn't be hired at all. In some of those occupations where they couldn't be hired at all, well, illegal to hire them at all, there were more blacks hired than there were whites. Because there are economic factors that come in, and you don't just pass a law, and that automatically produces the results you want. Yeah. Can, can you go into some of the economic factors that you mentioned there? Because I thought it was sort of interesting about the, the types of jobs that black yeah, people that, had and why that would affect. Well, it, it's, it's, no, it's the competitiveness of the industry. In a competitive industry, uh, discrimination in the, in, the, in the sense that we, that we use for anti-discrimination laws, uh, it costs the discriminator as well as the others. Now, insofar as the price can be evaded by the discriminator, he will, he will discri- for example, minimum wage laws. Let, when you have a minimum wage law, uh, you have more people applying for jobs in those categories uh, than there are jobs available mm-hmm. because the, the raising, the, raising the wage rate causes more people to apply and employers to hire fewer because they're more expensive. And so you have a chronic surplus. Now, if you've got a chronic surplus in an industry, it costs nothing to discriminate. Mm-hmm. But, if, and I, and, and, but, it, but if you have a competitive market, then, of course, it does cost something. For every person that you discriminate against who's qualified, you've got to hire somebody else. And you've got to raise that pay rate in order to get uh, people in. So I show how... how Competitive industries have much less discrimination than, say, uh, regulated public utilities. So I, I was wondering when I was reading it if you were ever going to talk about how now technology is also changing this. So we see a lot of these movements for $15 minimum wage, and I know why you don't think that's a great idea. But even now where we see McDonald's and some of these other places just replacing people with iPads oh, yes. and computers. This, this has been happening, I don't know, when I grew up in Harlem, they, when you went into a movie theater, this is a little neighborhood movie theater in Harlem, there would be a kid who would walk right down the aisle with you with a flashlight to show you to your seat, <laughs> you see. And so now, now that we have so many compassionate people who want, want people to be paid a, minute, uh, a living wage, <laughs> you, you stumble down the, down the aisle to your seat the best way you can because yeah. they're not going to pay you that kind of money, you know, uh, that's, that's unrelated to productivity. Yeah. What would you say to the people I hear a growing movement of people saying, well, this is why we need a universal basic income because technology is going to force, force so many people out of the workplace? Oh, that has been that, that is that, that that argument has been made for centuries, and it's, it's been proven wrong for centuries. Uh, I would ask the question: What has happened? We've moved in that direction already. We have lots of people who can live off the welfare state and not and not and not have to have to be productive. Uh, and how, 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 are they better people as a result of that? Uh, one of the, I saw some time back, and I haven't followed this. That uh, young pe- the suicide rates among young people were among the negative uh, consequences of the 1960s. Uh, people, ha- you, you, you've taken all meaning out of people's lives. And so they find all kinds of crazy things to do, drugs, whatever. Uh, and then, again, it's not peculiar to the United States. This is, you find this in Britain, other countries. Uh, and so, again, people who say this almost never look at any facts about what's happened as we expanded the welfare state. Did people behave better? No. You know, I mean, one of the, one of the things that 
moments that I remember very well. When I was I was back in the school in Harlem for some reason, maybe doing research, and I looked out the window and I said, said you know, I, when I was a teenager, I used to walk a dog, my dog in that park, and look of, looks of horror came over the students' faces because that, that was a different world. And so, uh, and, and when I tell them that I used to sleep out on a fire escape on hot summer nights, because who, who could afford air conditioning? And they think I'm a man from Mars. <laughs> People did that all over New York. They did it in Washington. They did it in North Carolina. Uh, relatives who are in Washington used to go down Haynes Point down near the Jefferson Memorial on hot summer nights and sleep there till you know sometime after midnight when the when the when the heat wouldn't be so bad and they'd go home at, at that time. You'd be out of your mind to do that today. It'd be too dangerous. Yeah. So how do we sort of untie some of this? So my, my sister right now lives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, not too far from Harlem, and she's in a half-rent-stabilized uh, or rent-controlled oh, building yes. and, and half-market price. She's on the market price, so she's paying to be in a two-bedroom <laughs> in New York City. I don't even want to tell you how expensive it is. But then there are basically half of the building that's paying next to nothing. And yes. that, of course, incentivizes people not to get off the dole, because if you're living in a yeah. nice area on the Upper West Side, very cheap, why in the world would you ever get off the dole? How do we start solving these problems? And I know, I know facts is your, is your bedrock answer. Yes. But, but what can we do to, to get people to understand some of this stuff? Because it, it seems so basic to understand. If someone was giving you something uh, that you didn't earn, again, it's, this, hard this to, not, it's hard to... This, this is, again, this is common. One of the, in, in Europe, in England especially, it's a, it's a, it's a special problem because you, you, have the, you have this place where, where your rent is subsidized and say you're in London and jobs are disappearing in London and they're opening up in Manchester. Now, if you go to Manchester, you, know, you, know, you, you get on a waiting list for that kind of job. Uh, and if you stay in, in, in London, you're unemployed, but your rent is low. Yeah. And so, so you slow down the, the movement of people. You slow down the turnover of people in these apartments. But again, most people who talk about this don't even talk in terms of if this, then that. They talk about it as this is how the world ought to be. Well, heck, I, I, I can think of all kinds of things of how I think the world ought to be. But unfortunately, most of those things involve a cost, a trade-off. Do you think there's a system or a government that's doing it better, doing freedom better than we're doing it here, for, for all the flaws that we have in this, in this system, is anyone doing it better than us? Oh, there, there may be marginally so. But I think most of the Western world is less free that, than it was, say, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. By, by what measurements do you view that? Oh, just the amount of, of regulations. Uh, things you, you could... You, and, and also by consequences. I, I was reading uh, Milton Friedman's, he and his wife had a joint autobiography. And she, she's looking, at one point she says, she, she, looking back on the, the, the days when she would ride the IND subway in Manhattan. And what a joy it was, as she said, in those long gone days. And uh, the IND subway goes through Harlem. Uh, and Milton Friedman and his uh, wife, when they were still courting, used to go dancing at the Savoy Ballroom. Uh, ver- very few people wanted, wanted and, and, you know, the famous uh, theme song of Duke Ellington, Take the A-Train. Mm-hmm. The, the A-Train goes right through Harlem on the IND line. And uh, so Friedman, who was only five foot two, had no fear of being uh, mugged or uh, even accosted and go there. 
there were, and this, this was common. There was a, there was a black actress who uh, used to get finished with the play and her socializing afterwards. And at one o'clock in the morning, she said she would be taking the uh, subway up to 155th Street and St. Nicholas Avenue by herself and, and walking home. Nobody does that these right. days. And so you have to look, one, at what are the facts? How did they change? And, 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 and you don't simply say, the other thing is that uh, they're saying um, the, the no child left behind thing with Bush. Mm-hmm. There are kids who go to school to raise hell, and a, and a handful of those can prevent the whole class from learning anything. Now, the logical thing would be to separate those kids out uh, and let the ones who want to learn something, learn something. You yeah. can't do that because the ideology mm-hmm. says no. And, again, so, and so you sacrifice whole generations of poor and minority kids for this ideology and this utopian notion. Yeah, and we, and we end up in an odd dystopia probably. Yeah, and Milton Friedman used to say uh, the best is the enemy of the good. Yeah. And, of course, it would be better if everybody could be educated at the same time. It can't be done. So as someone that has survived the, the arrows and, and the, the venom that the left can throw at you, because I, I see a lot of this these days, I see even what they, they say to me, um, I find I get a lot of email from people saying, what, how, how can I be brave enough to do it? And, and I think it's particularly a unique situation for uh, minorities that consider themselves conservative or libertarian or a little bit to the right. So I mentioned Larry Elder before, and of course you and my friend David Webb, and I, you know, there there are some more black conservatives mm-hmm. than perhaps there used to be. Um, oh, no question about it. What would be if someone's watching this right now and just needs that little extra bit of courage to start saying? No, 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 no. You, you have to look at the circumstances. I mean, I've advised some young people: uh, do not go into t- into t- teaching in the public schools because uh, uh, the odds are so stacked against you, and people can write bad references from you for you. When, especially when you're young and, and, you, and what they say about you is all that the, someone sees. Now, by the time I was uh, teaching at some of these schools, I remember one place where the, the department chairman used to uh, threaten one of my, my colleagues that he wouldn't write good references for him. I had, I, I had uh, you know, I'd, I'd published stuff while I was still in graduate school. I had Milton Friedman and uh, Joyce Staler to write references for me. What this guy said there as chairman of the department wouldn't, wouldn't matter a bit. But but most people don't don't have that uh, situation. No. And so you you have to pick your you have to pick your fights. So I want to uh, time is limited here. I want to mention one thing that you say right at the end of the book that really what we need more than anything else perhaps is common decency. Yes. And we've kind of lost that. It isn't common anymore. I mean. Uh, when I was going to school, and we'd have fights on the schoolyard grounds, when one, one guy was clearly beaten, whoever was the toughest kid uh, in the crowd would simply step in and stop it. Yeah. And the other guy said, you want to fight? You can fight me. You know, uh, that's that, what we need in the public square now. <laughs> yes, yes. But, but with a, with a, I mean, the poli- there's only so much the police can do. Uh, if, you, if you don't have common decency, the, 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 the cops ha- are not, not, not going to be able to, to, to handle it. Uh, and especially when everyone is second guessing it, I love it when people who have never fired a gun in their lives uh, say, "Why do the cops fire so many guns?" Now, at one time, I, I taught pistol shooting in the Marine Corps. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest that they shot, fired so many things under those conditions. 
But people, people can't be knowledgeable about everything, but they can be knowledgeable about the extent of their own ignorance, uh, even if they have PhDs. Sir, this has been a, a true honor and a pleasure. And I, and I know, I can see it in your eyes even, the, the sort of humility that you have and humbleness. But you've, you've affected so many people and are still continuing to affect so many people. And I hope that we might have just given that a, a little extra bump today. So I'm, I'm truly honored that you took the time well, today. Well, thank you very much. You probably already shop at Amazon. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark my special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends.